Alrighty, well, I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we always do that. <laughs> I guess I am curious. We could just jump right into your story because I am curious about, you did tell me what it was about and I looked into it a little bit and I am curious about why you picked this story. I think the comparison to the Zodiac Killer drew me to it. Oh, really? Hmm. I was looking up like mystery unsolved cases and the comparison to the Zodiac Killer, which after doing the story, I don't understand. Yeah, I was going to say I didn't, <laughs> I didn't get that at all. But uh, yeah, okay. So why don't we just get right into your story and see what happens? Wait, what do you have for us tonight? <laughs> <laughs> well, this should be interesting. I'm kind of a little worried about how this is going to go because it is a long one. But I am doing the Tamam Shud case. At least I'm hoping that's how I pronounce it. We'll just go with that. Yes. It might vary how I pronounce it throughout the story. <laughs> yeah. um, so you might get different variations. But I'm doing the Tamam Shud case. Yes, don't come to our podcast for proper pronunciation of any... It's difficult. <laughs> Especially when it's a different language. <laughs> On November 30th, 1948, at 7 p.m., a man named John Bain Lyons and his wife went for a walk on a Somerton beach. They noticed a smartly dressed man lying on the sand with his head propped against a seawall. He was sprawled out about 20 yards from them with his legs stretched out and feet crossed. As the couple watched, the man extended his right arm upward and let it fall back to the ground. Lyons thought he was making a drunken attempt to smoke a cigarette. Half an hour later, another couple noticed the same man lying in the same position. They were looking from above. The woman stated he was nicely dressed with his shoes polished to a mere shine, which is definitely considered odd attire for the beach. He was motionless with his left arm spread out on the sand. The couple just assumed he was asleep, but his face was surrounded by mosquitoes. The boyfriend joked, saying he must be dead to the world not to notice them. Well, well, I guess I'll let you move on with that. I was curious if he was actually dead at that point, because obviously he wasn't when the first couple yeah. came by. It wasn't until the next morning that it became apparent that the man was dead. John Lyons returned from a morning swim to find people clustered at the seawall where he had seen the guy the previous evening. He walked over to see a figure slumped in the same position. The body was cold and there were no marks indicating violence. A half-smoked cigarette was lying on the man's collar as if it had fallen from his mouth. The body arrived at the Royal Adelaide Hospital three hours later. Dr. John Barclay Bennett put the time of death at no earlier than 2 a.m. He noted the likely cause of death as heart failure but added he suspected poisoning. So I guess hopefully that answers your question that it was around 2 a.m. and is around 7 to 8 p.m. when they... When the first or the second couple? Well, it was 7 p.m. when the first couple and then half an hour later when the second okay, couple. Okay, right, right, yeah, okay. 
Yeah, so he was still alive at that point. Yes. Okay. As and, far as like the autopsy has shown. Yeah. yeah. And we've we've kind of proven that cigarettes don't produce spontaneous combustion because his fallen cigarette, he would have been ashes by morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he did not combust okay. spontaneously. <laughs> the contents of the man's pockets included tickets from Adelaide to the beach, a pack of gum, matches, two combs, and a pack of Army Club cigarettes containing seven from another more expensive brand. He had no wallet, cash, or ID. None of the man's clothes had any name tags. One trouser pocket had been neatly repaired with an unusual variety of orange thread. And I know that sounds like a pointless comment or clue, but I promise just remember that detail for later. Okay, on the edge of my seat. (laughs) (laughs) By the time the full autopsy was completed a day later, the police had already exhausted their best leads to identify the man. The corpse's pupils were smaller than normal, and a dribble of saliva had run down the side of the man's mouth, probably because he was unable to swallow it while lying down. His spleen was large and firm, almost three times normal size. The liver was distended, congested with blood. Pathologist John Dwyer found the remains of his last meal in his stomach and a further quantity of blood. That also suggested poisoning, though there was no evidence of poison being in the food. No evidence of any poisons that they could detect. Yes. Right. Correct. But they still believe that he was poisoned. Yes. I will explain why they believe that in the next. Okay. Because I was confused too. (laughs) The behavior on the beach was slumping in a suit, raising and dropping his right arm seemed less like drunkenness than it did a lethal dose of something taking slow effect. Repeated tests on both blood and organs by an expert chemist failed to reveal the faintest trace of poison, so no cause of death was found. Adelaide coroner Thomas Cleland was informed by Professor Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks that a very rare poison could have been used, one that decomposed very early after death, leaving no trace. The only poisons capable of this were so dangerous and deadly that Hicks would not say their names aloud in open court. Instead, he passed Cleland a scrap of paper that he had written the names of two possible candidates, Digitalis and Strophanthin. Hicks suspected the latter. Strophanthin is a rare glycoside derived from seeds of some African plants. Historically, it was used by a little-known Somali tribe to poison arrows. The police continued their investigation with even more confusion. A full set of fingerprints was taken and circulated throughout Australia, and then throughout the English-speaking world. No one could identify them. People from all over were escorted to the mortuary in the hope they could give the man a name. Some thought they knew him from photos published in the newspapers. Others were distraught relatives of people who had gone missing. No one was able to identify the body. By January 11th, South Australian police had investigated and dismissed pretty much every lead they had. The investigation was widened in an attempt to locate any abandoned personal possessions, such as luggage, that might suggest that the dead man had come from out of the state. This meant checking every hotel, dry cleaner, lost property office, and railroad station for miles around. On the 12th, detectives sent to the main railroad station in Adelaide were shown a brown suitcase that had been deposited in the cloakroom there on November 30th. The staff couldn't remember anything about the owner, and the case's contents were not much more revealing. 
The case did contain a reel of orange thread identical to the one used to repair the man's trousers, but meticulous care had been applied to remove practically every trace of the owner's identity. The case had no stickers or markings, and a label had been torn off from one side. The tags were missing from all but three items of clothing inside. These had the name Keen or T. Keen, but it was impossible to trace anyone of that name, and the police concluded, an Adelaide newspaper reported, that someone had purposely left them on knowing that the man's name was not Keen. It seems like they've gone to a lot of trouble to identify this person. Yeah. I'm curious if that was normal back then. Because it seems like these days they wouldn't, you know, if they found a John Doe. Yeah. They wouldn't go through so much trouble to identify him. I don't know. Because it is like a weird case. I just wonder if it was just the era or they just had more time back then. (laughs) I don't know if it's about them having more time. Maybe it's just the mystery because I feel like nowadays it wouldn't really be that hard to identify someone. Right, but if they couldn't identify somebody, they would just mark him as a John Doe. I assume they would just mark him as a John Doe and wait until somebody comes to identify them. That's true. I don't think they would spend so much time trying to find out who they were. I could be wrong, but... Yeah, I have I have no idea. Yeah, okay. But yeah, they are going through a lot. <laughs> the remainder of the contents were equally mysterious. There was a stencil kit of the sort used by third officer on merchant ships responsible for the stenciling of cargo, a table knife with a handle cut down, and a coat stitched using a feather stitch unknown in Australia. A tailor identified the stitch work as American in origin, suggesting that the coat, and perhaps its wearer, had traveled during the war years. But searches of shipping and immigration records from across the country again produced no leads. So the plot thickens. Yeah. <laughs> The police had brought in another expert, John Cleland, a professor of pathology at the University of Adelaide, to re-examine the corpse and the man's possessions. In April, four months after the discovery of the body, Cleland's search produced a final piece of evidence that proved to be the most baffling of all. Cleland discovered a small pocket sewn into the waistband of the man's trousers. Previous examiners had missed it, and several people had referred to it as a secret pocket but it seemed to have been intended to hold a fob watch. Inside, tightly rolled, was a scrap of paper which opened up with two words typeset in an elaborate printed script. The phrase read, Tamam Shud, which meant it is ended in Persian. Okay, so that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> and it's weird that no one else found it. Right, weird that they, that they took so long to find it. Yeah. Frank Kennedy, the police reporter for the Adelaide Advertiser, recognized the words as Persian and called police to suggest they obtain a copy of a book of poetry, the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. I'm hoping that's pronounced right. We're going to go with it. Again, yeah, we'll go with that. This work, written in the 12th century, had become popular in Australia during the war years in a much-loved translation by Edward Fitzgerald. It existed in numerous editions, but the usual intricate police inquiries to libraries, publisher, and bookshops failed to find one that matched the fancy type. At least it was possible to say that the words Tamam Shud, or Taman Shud, as several newspapers misprinted, was from Kayam's romantic reflections in life and mortality. 
They were the last words in most English translations, not surprisingly because the phrase meant it is ended. This new clue suggested that the death might be a case of suicide. In fact, the South Australian police never did turn their missing person inquiries into a full-blown murder investigation. So it was never fully a murder investigation. But then they suspected suicide after seeing that. Well, so they thought it was suicide. They just determined that it wasn't a murder, or they just... They just, just never turned it into just really a murder didn't know. case. Okay. Yeah. I again, think there's the mystery behind it. Yeah, again, where they're spending so much time. Yeah. This did not bring them any closer to identifying the man, and his body had begun to decompose. Arrangements were made for a burial, but knowing they were disposing one of the few pieces of evidence they had, the police first had the corpse embalmed and a cast taken of the head and upper torso. The body was then buried, sealed under concrete in a plot of dry ground specifically chosen in case it became necessary to exhume it. Over time, flowers would be found on the grave at different times, but no one could figure out who had left them there or why. (laughs) That's weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. It's a random piece of, like, information, but it's, like, a really weird piece of information for the fact that no one knows. Was this a well-known case at the time where the the general public knew what they were investigating or were they kind of doing this? I think it was a well-known case because it was in newspapers and stuff. Because I could just see some random person, you know. Well, yeah, I, I guess. And if you feel bad because there's like no family there to mourn. Would you think that somebody who knew that person was the one putting the flowers down or... Just somebody who knew about the case and was putting flowers down for this person who had died. Well, either way, we would kind of be a little suspicious considering if it was someone that they knew, well, why be, did they come forward? Well, what if the person was a spy or something? So they didn't want the authorities to know who he was. Yeah. But they were putting flowers down for him. Yeah. What? Well, it's interesting that you bring up spy because I do mention that later. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that that was the first thing that came to my mind was he was poisoned. You know, he was, he was dressed well, poisoned, laying on the beach, had all this weird stuff. He was hiding his identity. Sounds kind of spyish to me. I would have never thought that. Oh, really? I don't know. I forget that spies are a thing. <laughs> well, yeah, he didn't grow up during the Cold War, so. <laughs> yeah, that's probably... <laughs> In July, eight months after the investigation had begun, the search for the right Rubaiyat produced results. On the 23rd, a Glenelg man walked into the detective office in Adelaide with a copy of the book and a strange story. The previous December, just after the discovery of the body, he had gone for a drive with his brother-in-law in in a car he kept parked a few hundred yards from the Somerton Beach. The brother-in-law had found a copy of the Rubaiyat lying on the floor by the back seats. Each man has silently assumed it belonged to the other, and the book had sat in the glove department ever since. After seeing a newspaper article about the search, the two men had gone back to take a closer look. They found that part of the final page had been torn out, together with Kayam's final words, so they went to the police. So they're implying that they, the guy tore the piece out, put it in his pocket, threw the book in their car before he went down to the beach to die. I don't know if that's what they're implying. I don't know if they well, meant that they found it in their car or by their car. 
Well, they're they're basically trying to explain why the book was in their possession, right? Yeah. And they're saying somebody had to put it there because they don't know where it came from. Yeah. It's just a matter of whether it was the murderer who did it or if he did it before he committed suicide. Yeah. Either way, it's weird. Yeah. Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean took a close look at the book. Almost at once, he found a phone number written on the back cover. Using magnifying glass, he made out the faint impression of some other letters written in capitals underneath. The number was unlisted, but it did belong to a young nurse who lived near Somerton Beach. Like the two Glenelg men, she was never publicly identified, but she is known by her nickname, Justin. Reluctantly, the nurse admitted that she had indeed presented a copy of the Rubaiyat to a man she had known during the war. She gave detectives his name, Alfred Boxall. The police felt confident that they had solved the mystery. Boxall surely was the unknown man. Within days, they traced his home to Murrowbra, New South Wales. The problem was that Boxall was still alive and still had the copy of the Rubaiyat Justin had given him, and it was completely intact. Well, that's bizarre. Yeah. So her name, her her phone number was written in the book. Yes. And she gave a book to somebody, but the book she gave, wow, that's just really bizarre. Well, how do we know she didn't give to multiple people? Yeah, men maybe she, the maybe that. Because it did say that she was reluctant to telling the police because she was living with the man who would become her husband later. Maybe that was a thing that she passed this book out to multiple <laughs> men. <laughs> That's like the dating site back then. Yeah. Like, here's my number. <laughs> yeah, really. In the back of a book. Yeah. yeah. Questioning the nurse did get them some bits of information. She recalled that sometime the previous year, she could not be certain of the date, that she had come home to the neighbors informing her that an unknown man had called and asked for her. When shown the cast of the man's face, Justin seemed completely taken aback to the point of giving the appearance that she was about to faint. So it appears she knew the man. Yes, but she denied that she had seen him before. Interesting. The plot thickens. Yes. (laughs) Examined under ultraviolet light, five lines of jumbled letters could be seen in the book the second of which had been crossed out. The first three were separated from the last two by a pair of straight lines with an X written over them. It seemed that they were some sort of code. Trying to break code from only a small fragment of text is difficult, but the police did their best. They sent the message to naval intelligence and allowed the message to be published in the press. This produced a frenzy of amateur code breaking, almost all of it worthless and a message from the Navy concluding that the code appeared unbreakable. So was this what led you to the connection with the Zodiac? Yeah. Like I said, I was looking up mysterious stories that have been unsolved, uh-huh. and it compared it to the Zodiac Killer, probably only from the bit of there being code and people trying to break the code. But again, I don't really see any type of connection. The Australian police never cracked the code or identified the unknown man. Justin died without revealing why she had seemed faint when shown the cast of the man's face. 
And when the South Australian coroner published the final results of his investigation in 1958, his report concluded with the admission, quote, I am unable to say who the deceased was. I am unable to say how he died or what was the cause of death, end quote. In recent years, the Tamam Shud case began to attract new attention. Amateur sleuths have probed at the loose ends left by the police, solving one or two minor mysteries but often creating new ones in their place. Two persistent investigators, retired Australian policeman Jerry Feltis, author of the only book yet published on the case, and Professor Derek Abbott of the University of Adelaide, have made particularly useful progress. Both freely admit they have not solved the mystery, but close by looking briefly at the remaining puzzles and leading theories. First, the man's identity remains unknown. It is generally presumed that he was known to Justin and may have been the man who called at her apartment. But even if he was not, the nurse's shocked response when confronted with the body cast was telling. Abbott's traced Justin's identity and discovered that she had a son. Analysis of the surviving photos of the unknown man and Justin's child reveals intriguing similarities, leading to the theory that this may have been his son and could have been the reason why he killed himself when told he could not see them. These Mm. are very out-there theories, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say that 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 seems really out there. Yeah, seems a little like trying too much to find a solution. Right, right. So those who argue against this theory point to the cause of the man's death. How credible is it to say that someone would commit suicide by dosing himself with a poison? Digitalis and even strophanthin can be found in pharmacies, but not off the shelf. Both poisons are muscle relaxants used to treat heart disease. The apparent exotic nature of the death suggests to these theorists that the unknown man was possibly a spy. Yeah, call it. <laughs> <laughs> Alfred Boxel had worked in intelligence during the war, and the unknown man died, after all, at the onset of the Cold War, at a time when the British rocket testing facility at Woomera, a few hundred miles from Adelaide, was one of the most secret bases in the world. Interesting, now why he would be killed. Yeah, that, I don't know. Unless the government killed him, but obviously they weren't going to come forward and say anything. Of course, you would think they would just make the guy disappear. They wouldn't just poison him and leave him on their own beach. Yeah. (laughs) Throw him in the ocean or something. I don't know. It has even been suggested that the poison was administered to him through his tobacco, which might explain the mystery of why his army club pack contained seven cigarettes of a different brand. Oh, so somebody swapped out his cigarettes? Well, that's what they're claiming. Because he did have a pack of cigarettes, but seven of them were a different, more expensive brand. Yeah, that's kind of weird, though, with the whole book and the the piece of paper, though. Yeah. Because somebody put the book somewhere. Yeah. Put the piece of paper in his pocket, and then he went off and died. But if somebody swapped out his cigarettes, then he would have just smoked them and died somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. Weird. And then on top of it with the coded message on the book and the nurse's phone number. (laughs) (laughs) That's all weird, too. I don't know. So many mysteries. None of them point to any solution. As far-fetched as this seems, there are two more genuinely odd things about the mystery of the Tamam Shud that point away from anything such as suicide. 
The first is the apparent impossibility of locating an exact duplicate of the Rue Bayot handed in to the police in July of 1949. Jerry Feltis had tracked down a near-identical version with the same cover published by a New Zealand bookstore chain named Whitcomb and Toombs, but it was published in a different format. Abbott discovered that at least one other man died in Australia after the war with a copy of Kayam's poems close by him. The man's name was George Marshall. He was a Jewish immigrant from Singapore, and his copy of the Rubaiyat was the seventh edition published in London. The publisher and libraries around the world suggest that there was never more than five editions of Rubaiyat which means that the Marshall's seventh edition was as non-existent as the unknown man's Whittacombe and Tombs appeared to be. So this brought another question to theorists that this might have not been a book at all, but disguised spy gear of some sort. The final mystery was when Jerry Feltis stumbled across a neglected piece of evidence a statement given in 1959 by a man who had been on Somerton Beach. On the evening that the man died, he was walking toward the spot where his body was found. The witness said he saw a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge, but he could not describe the man. So implying that, yeah, that somebody poisoned him and then took him down to set him down on the beach. Yes. But at the time, it wasn't considered <laughs> a mysterious piece of evidence because yeah. the witness assumed that he was somebody carrying a drunken friend. But with everything else afterwards, I feel like... Yeah, seems odd that they would overlook that. Yeah. But after the long painful of trying to pronounce words, that is the end of my <laughs> story. Still a mystery. So they never cracked the code? Not that I've read anywhere. Wow. Yeah, that, that is a really bizarre story. I, I really don't know what to make of that. I don't know how things worked back then. But it's weird that if he was a spy, that after the war, they didn't come to identify him. Yeah, I don't think any government's going to identify a spy because they're, they're never going to admit that they have spies. And people go into that field of work knowing yeah. that they're pretty much non-existent people anymore. So if they disappear, then they're just gone. They don't exist. So is it true that like if a family member goes into the CIA that none of their family knows about it? Yeah, I don't know how much of that is Hollywood and how much. Uh, it okay. seems like they pick people who don't have a lot of connections and stuff, I would guess. I so guess that, that if, makes sense. Yeah, if they, have di if they disappear, you know, nobody's really looking for them. Yeah. Just all weird to me. I would have never thought of Spy, so it's interesting that you brought that up. Before I even brought up the theory. Yeah, it's, it's weird. All the, all of the different clues. You have the tags that were removed yes. to avoid identification. So that's, that's weird, right? But then, yeah, the whole book thing and the piece of paper and the lady's name in his book. And then the, the poison, the poison, the cryptic message, the, the cigarettes. Well, yeah. to be fair, there were no traces of poison so it could also be a very out there theory. Yeah, but then how else did he die? That's true. Because you know? there was no evidence of violence on him either. Right. Like foul play. Sounds like a spy to me. Yeah. I, I can't. What? Well, I was going to bring up, I don't know if it's just like a movie thing, 
But you know how in movies they have the spies who have like the fake teeth oh, with yeah, the poison? The uh, cyanide capsules in their tooth. I was I was thinking about that earlier when you were talking. I was like, <laughs> when they're looking at his body and yeah, I was wondering if they missed a cyanide capsule in his tooth. That yeah, they, they didn't look for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a real thing, but <laughs> well, I well, I don't know if it's a real thing, first of all. But if it is, was it a thing back in that time? I think during the Cold War it would have been if it was a thing. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. I just didn't know if it was like too advanced. No, no. I also thought when you're talking about somebody else had died with that book near them, well, serial killer came to mind, but it just seems so elaborate. Yeah. for a serial killer right well it wasn't that exact book it was just one of the poetry works yeah from that author but yeah i i don't know if that's also why the zodiac killer was brought up in comparison it bothers me that he was brought up in comparison because i don't see any ties yeah uh, yeah i don't either i i don't see how you could look at anything other than a spy yeah. Unless the guy just killed himself and there's just all this, you know, stuff that everybody's reading into it. Based off pictures, though, he does kind of look like he'd be a spy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly the person you wouldn't want to be a spy, though, right? <laughs> well, I think maybe back then he didn't. But... <laughs> you don't want spies that look like spies. <laughs> <laughs> well, he probably didn't look like one back then, but like now I feel where they're more of a theory that there are spies out there, you kind of tend to look for that. Yeah. Definitely bizarre. Yeah. All right, well, I think we'll wrap it up there. I'm not sure how long we've been talking, but it seems like that a was a pretty intense story. So maybe I'll just roll my story over into next week. Take up the whole episode. Give me a break after this uh, one. Okay, <laughs> after this now I got to find something to take up the whole. Okay. No, it's okay. No, I'll do that. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Make sure to visit next week for more weird and creepy stories. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 12 past three or email us at podcast at 12 past three.com. Good night. Good night. Good night.